This is Secrets to Win Big, your roadmap to sustained growth. Brought to you by Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, brand whisperer, top brand growth driver, and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. Find him at zenmango.com. And now, here's your host, Arjun Sen. Welcome to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen. This is Arjun. I love to win, but I've found that winning big puts all of us in any industry on the path to sustain long-term wins. And in this podcast, it's literally my pleasure to have amazing conversations with leaders from all walks of life all over the world. And uh, this part is very important because what I've learned is we are all different. Our winning is different, definition of winning, our path is different. That's the reason these nuggets are very important. So in that particular spirit today, and it's really my pleasure to have this conversation with Prithviraj Banerjee. And Prithviraj is a very unique innovationist at heart, who has led the highest level of innovation success in three fields academia, startups, and large tech companies. Even one of these achievements would have been obscenely large and doing it in three fields. And that's what fascinated me to find out the common thread that connects Prithviraj and what makes him successful all through. His current role, he is the CIO at ANSYS, an engineering modeling and simulation company. And he has led innovation for organizations the highest level, as I was mentioning earlier, in three totally different mega industries. So that is what is very important is totally different industries. Of course, there's a common thread, but at each one highest level of impact. First, academics as professor and dean at University of Illinois and Northern, Northwestern University, pursuing a long range R&D work. Then, a startup at founder of two successful startup companies, Axel Chip and also Bina Chip. And finally, the high-tech corporate brands for really established brands, evolving brands, where as the leading R&D organizations, as director of HP Lab, CIO, ABB, CEO of Schneider Electric, and also CIO of ANSYS. I also want to talk about a little bit about, you know, Prithvi as the, you know, I call him Da because, you know, growing in Kolkata, you know, it's out of respect because he went to the same university, IIT Kharagpur, and he is the president's gold medal from that particular batch. So Prithviraj, it's truly, absolutely an honor to have this conversation with you today. Thank you very much, Arjun, and it is an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I have read your blogs uh, over the over the years and. Uh, Again, thanks for such a wonderful, wonderful introduction. Uh, you mentioned uh, part of my introduction as CIO. I was, I was CTO, a slightly, uh, I just wanted to correct it, which is sort of chief technology officer, uh, as opposed to CIO, which is chief innovation officer, or innovation or chief information officer. But it doesn't matter. I have led large R&D organizations as large uh, R&D companies. Thank you. Absolutely. So to me, I just want to get to, because of this broad impact of industries, I just want to understand how do you define innovation? Like what has been your drive to be in a career of constant 
big high impact innovation absolutely so sometimes people confuse innovation with r&d right just doing something new when you do something new that is discovery but when that discovery new has impact it can be business impact social impact some financial impact then then that translates into innovation so just let me give a very very simple example the world has tables with four legs mm-hmm. suppose you come up with a table with five legs mm-hmm. okay the world didn't have a table with five legs so therefore it is something new mm-hmm. but does this have value will anybody pay you money or will it have a social need where a table with five legs actually is something novel that has come to the world that would be innovative i knew i give a very simple example but often times people get confused oh i just did something new and so right and mm-hmm. the next step is that innovative thing has to have large impact right so if you come up with a small innovative thing right i mean it is innovative it is having impact but is impacting just one or two people in the planet versus something innovative that has impact to a large group large social impact or large financial impact that is what i call true innovation i love that and right away i think what you separated immediately is innovation is not just discovery without the impact in fact as i'm learning it's all about the size of the impact that defines and how many people and what level of impact so what got you so excited what drove you to go for these big impacts every time absolutely so and this is where my rather interesting uh, background would come in handy right so I, as you mentioned in introduction i spent the first 20 years in academia right i got my phd and i joined university of illinois as a professor as an assistant professor and at that time and i spent about a dozen years in at illinois a 67 years in northwestern when i was in academia in academia you work with graduate students and you're trying to solve discovery problems right mm-hmm. somebody has done and invented an order n cubed algorithm for doing what and you just come up with an order n log n or something right it and you prove that it's provably convergent and so on and i was i kept on doing those kind of things i my i've got graduated more than 37 phd students 350 papers all of those were technical innovation right i was mm-hmm. i was doing discovery and then pretty soon you sort of ask questions yes n cubed versus n log n with n is only 10 the difference is not that much right n cubed is 1000 n log n is whatever it's not important. but if n is a million then the difference between n cubed and n log n is huge right so you have to not only do the discovery but you have to work on really really important problems so now let me fast forward so i you mentioned that i did a couple of startups right so mm-hmm. i was at northwestern leading a project on the match compiler which was funded by darpa and we are trying to do take a a, a high level description of some uh, al- signal processing algorithms written in matlab and we showed mm-hmm. to darpa that well you could through this compiler that we that we developed at northwestern with all these bright graduate students that i had you could take this matlab specification into a hardware thing that runs on fpga boards and so on. so we demonstrated that to darpa and the darpa program manager said prit this is really really interesting and mm-hmm. i had done all my publications so i as far as academic i was done 
-hmm. And here is a problem the dark matter needed solved. We solved it. We wrote 10 papers, three patents, whatever. My job was done. Mm -hmm. From a really job done, the DARPA manager said, Pit, this, you're onto something. You need to transfer it to industry. So I went around and I, and I talked to many, many companies in the EDA industry, Synopsis, Cadence, Intel, et cetera. And they all said, oh, Prit, this is phenomenal. Yeah, we will, we will, we will take it and, and transfer it, right? But just by looking at the eyes of the person, I knew that as soon as they walk out, they will they'll move on to the next thing. So if anybody has to do it, it had to be me. Mm -hmm. At that point, I took, made a sort of a career decision. I said, you know what? I'm going to do my own startup. I had no experience of doing startups, right? I got friends to help me, but I raised the first $2 million from VCs to do the startup and built a team, build a startup. The experience in doing that startup in how you take an idea from a research lab at a university and mm -hmm. making a product that people will buy, this is what I'm talking about as a value, right? Just mm -hmm. because it's new and somebody is going to write a check for $50,000 for using your software, you have to solve somebody's problem. And the problem that we are solving was prior to this, the, this sort of match compiler or Excel chip, the mm -hmm. design was you take MATLAB things and manually write code in a language called RTL. And that time was, was six to 12 months of an engineer's time. So how much do you pay an engineer? You pay $100,000, six months, it's about $60,000 plus more, right? So mm -hmm. you are providing value to a company that they don't have to have an engineer to pay them and the time, right? So essentially, instead of taking six months, this tool will do it in a matter of a couple of hours. That is value to the company, right? And they can innovate, they can bring products faster to the market and save the money. Mm -hmm. That is how you quantify the innovation, the value. Mm -hmm. and. As soon as customers started writing checks for $50,000 for this Excel chip tool, I knew I was onto something. And then we raised more money and ultimately the company was sold to, to Xilinx Corporation. So the point I'm trying to, to make is oftentimes people talk about, oh, here is discovery in a university and so on. And then they say, oh, I'll transfer it to a, a large company. It, it did not go from Northwestern to Xilinx, boom, like that. It went through it by me taking leave from the university, mm -hmm. working with a team of 20, 25 engineers, building a product, and I made lots and we all made lots of mistakes in, through this, right? But mm -hmm. staying focused on building that Excel chip tool, and mm -hmm. ultimately, once we sold that tool to multiple companies, then mm -hmm. a large company like Xilinx said, yep, this is onto something. This will be integrated as part of the flow, and it became part of Xilinx's uh, sort of uh, uh, set of tools. And I did that a second time with Banerjee. So my, the point I'm trying to make is in academia, the mm -hmm. metrics that professors have is to do publications, solve really hard problems. And we end that the publication at a conference or a journal or mm -hmm. maybe a patent. Mm -hmm. to that is not sort of, it is discovery. To make it into innovation, you mm -hmm. have to convert all that theory into a set of products or mm -hmm. solutions that people, engineers, or mm -hmm. people can use mm -hmm. and they're willing to pay for it, right? That's sort of the value, right? We're just free, oh yeah, anybody can do it, right? But somebody sees the value of that innovation, that that is where you have created value and that is what is innovation. Now, there can be tiny innovations or large mm -hmm. innovations. My contribution was a small innovation. I sold the company 
or about $25 million, right? Mm -hmm. There are other companies that are being sold for billion dollars. Why? Because they have a really innovative thing. There are other that companies being sold for $10 billion. What the conversation I want to have with you is, how do you win big with mm -hmm. big ideas and, mm -hmm. and create truly significant impact to the world? And so that's the part where what I really connect on this is how rapidly you evolve from the journey of only discovery to taking the discovery beyond to real impact. And the moment you play in real impact, ideas get openly judged based on the value. There's a difference, as you said, between a billion dollars and a 30 billion. The world needs both. So one thing I just want to look at is something very unique is from your days to being a student, to being a leader in academics, to successful startups, and now corporate leadership, you know, there's this personal brand of Prithiraj. And the thing that is very unique about is in every phase, you have self-innovated very rapidly. And just to put you on the spot, sometimes it takes a lifetime to get to that innovation. You have already done that three times. And I look at academics to startup was impact and startup to what you're doing now is mega impact. So the whole question is, how does Prithiraj, you know, do these big innovations? How do you self-innovate? How do you accelerate that fast and make an impact? So actually, thank you for doing this. And again, you are being very, very kind. It, it, says, it has been a journey and uh, lots of other people who have been around me that have made me sort of successful in what, what I do. But I'll actually use the, I mean, you, you it's a, there are two sort of mega transition points in my career. The first one was from academia to startup and I kind of illustrated it mm -hmm. through the, the example of Excel chip, right? And, but mm -hmm. there are other professors who have done this much more successfully than I have. But that, the point I was trying to make was about how technology transfer happens from academia to large companies mm -hmm. through the professor leaving doing a startup and being sold to a big company. And there mm -hmm. are lots of examples like Nick McCon, professor of Stanford, did work on software defined networking, created a fantastic company that was bought by VMware for hundreds of millions of dollars. He is the mega, mega innovator, but there are lots and lots of other uh, such innovators. But the second transition that I made in my career was a career to large companies, right? So, and mm -hmm. I, was, I was absolutely honored in 2007 to be given the opportunity to run HP Labs. And I've run much bigger jobs in the future, but my job as director of HP Labs is to this day the best and most exciting job I had. And I, here is why. Uh, so one, what happened was uh, HP Labs was an organization where about 500 researchers, the most brightest PhD level people, right? Sitting inside Hewlett Packard, a $100 billion company, right? Mm -hmm. And we had mm -hmm. large businesses like server business, PC business, printing business, software and service, right? Mm -hmm. And I had a, and when I was given that opportunity, I said, my God, I am now sitting in a gold mine. I have the absolute top-notch people, the mm -hmm. brilliant scientists, the best people in the world. Mm -hmm. I've got funding of upwards of $200 million, right? And I have a channel, the five mega businesses running $100 billion, right? All I have to do is to take this little R&D stuff that my people are doing at HP Lab, my colleagues are doing at HP Lab, and channel it into this $100 billion business. How hard can mm -hmm. it be? Pretty soon I found out after joining a couple of years is that 
all these 500 these researchers were doing super, super smart. They were actually, unfortunately, focused on the incremental innovation, the smaller innovations, meaning that these one or two people working on a publication, on a patent, and trying to do, here is a faster database algorithm or a new cache coherence algorithm for a server or a better way to do a, a slight variant in a laser printer. They were not going after the big bets. Mm-hmm. So I sort of, after a year, I said, you know what? This is a phenomenal organization. Let's try to do a major reset of this organization and try to solve big bet projects. Mm-hmm. And if you do a little Google search, you will see there through IEEE the Spectrum, ACM, many or sort of art, articles have been written about the HP Labs transformation, which I'm very proud of working with my, my, my colleagues at HP Labs. Mm-hmm. We took this organization of 500 people that were working on hundreds of individual projects and we challenged them, if we were to pick 20 big bet ideas to work on, mm-hmm. what would they be? And the characteristic of big bet is something that is technically has not been solved. So mm-hmm. it has to be really, really challenging. So think about writing a proposal to the National Science Foundation to get a engineering research center. So you have to have write a proposal to win that big R&D project. But simultaneously, that uh, if you build that significant thing that the world has not seen so far, it has to have a billion dollar plus impact. So it has to be big, right? And so mm-hmm. essentially, now we have to write a business plan to the VCs in Menlo Park in Sand Hill Road, right? So it had mm-hmm. to that proposal had to have a NSF-ish proposed research proposal view and a startup-ish Sand Hill view. And my colleagues at HP Labs wrote like, I think we had more than 80, 100 ideas and we selected 20 of them, and we organized these teams of 20 to 30 people to work on these big bets. Mm -hmm. That was the most exciting transformation that I have been involved with in any organization thus far. I have worked as CTO at ABB, CTO at Schneider, but I have never had the personal pleasure to work on those big things. And that was a phenomenal sort of uh, transformational work at HP Labs over five years. And I still look back to those years as the golden years of HP Labs. I think, you know, what you shared, I think it's a universal concept you shared is HP was already doing great when you got there. It was already winning. But the difference from winning big to winning winning big or mega win is all about, as you talked about, all of us focusing on the few things. And I really cannot believe how difficult it was to go from 1800 to 20 to commit to it, because I think that whole concept of the big bet where something the world has not seen, something worth solving, it's that big solution, billion dollars. I really think that's something that's very important because many a time we put our efforts on too many small things instead of the one thing that's there. And just to digress for a second. Let me tell you what it is the reason people do the small incremental things. It is less risky to do the small incremental things. Mm-hmm. It is risky to do the big thing. So the organization has to have the appetite for failure. Mm-hmm. That is something that we, as, as part of the cultural thing, we actually set the expectations from the CEO to the executive committee to whatever that we are trying to hit a whole bunch of home runs mm-hmm. versus 
doing singles. I mean, I'm just doing a baseball analogy. But if you do just those singles, it is less risky, but it is highly, highly, you will be successful. So one approach is to do a bunch of small runs, right? Mm -hmm. And you will get to that point or swing big. And we at HP Lab chose the swing big approach, but the risk associated with it is there is a high likelihood that they would fail. Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of things that you can do in a corporate lab, such as HP Lab or IBM Research or Microsoft Research. This is why these large organizations have these research labs. Mm -hmm. You cannot do this in a normal product R&D setting, right? So I just wanted to be very clear. Oh, Absolutely. no, we just talked about it. You have to have the tolerance of failure and lots of those projects fail. Yeah. And I love that word phrase that you use is appetite for failure. And I really also think great that you pointed out is based on the size of organization, the size of the big bet and the risk you can take varies. But unless you push yourself to the max, it really does not work. So I just have a very, you know, little outside the dot question for you is, as you went from academics, where you were the control of your own domain totally, with amazing graduate students. And then you're taking risks with your ideas, but now at Hewlett, at HP, you are working with amazing talents and each mind is somewhat stubborn. You have to be stubborn, you have to be deterred. So how did you transition from a person of your own domain? Now you are building a team and seriously, 1800 to 20, it takes a major leadership to get people aligned because my idea was not selected. So what, how did the transition happen? So this is a wonderful question and, and it's got nothing to do with innovation or whatever. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is how do you take people along the journey, right? So the, in a large corporation, if you take the approach of top-down dictatorial I am the director of HP Labs and you, Arjun, listen to me, right? That top-down direction would never work. This is where my experience in academia helped me because in academia, you have a department chair, you have a dean. The dean does not tell a professor who is tenured to do X, Y, Z, right? Mm -hmm. I learned in academia how to generate collaborative consensus from a team to say, we are going to move, we'll write a proposal on this NSF Engineering Research Center together. Hey, Arjun, should we do this, right? So can we do this? Should we do this? Wouldn't it be interesting to do this, right? And you bring consensus. So my, I think I, I learned from my experience as dean, as department head, how to build consensus from tenured professors who have very strong opinions Mm -hmm. as to why they should take their time and work on this. So now let me tell you how specifically, because people will say, listen to this podcast. Oh, people Pith is just talking about abstract theory. Let me now give you something concrete. Absolutely. What I, when innovators innovate ideas, right? They say, hey, I have this great idea, but I would like to have a team, right? Mm -hmm. I, if I had a team of 20, I could do amazing things. You have to, so I set up a process where you said everybody can give ideas that it is my idea and I want to have 20 people working on it, right? So mm -hmm. each person at HB Labs was given the option to submit a big idea. 
But then the catch was, as part of this process, once we select the 20 ideas, mm -hmm. if their idea is not one of those, they would have to work on one of those 20 ideas or leave the organization. Now, look how this happened, right? Basically, I was creating a, 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 an agreement, mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. contract, a social contract, mm -hmm. saying that everybody can pitch their idea. But if at the end of it, through a selection process that I can go into, right? I, we had a technical advisory board and so on, right? You create a process by which idea number one gets funded and it is Arjun's idea. Mm -hmm. And Prith, I'm an engineer, my idea didn't get in, right? At that point, I would have to eat my ego and be part of the Arjun idea team and not eat my ego. I have to give all I have to make that idea successful because mm -hmm. I was given a fair chance mm -hmm. to pick this. Mm -hmm. This process that we created at HP Labs mm -hmm. was, in my opinion, phenomenal. And based on it, we created dynamically the 20 labs, right? Essentially, we took that 500 people organization and flattened it. Okay, you guys belong to no one. Each of you can propose ideas. Got it. The 20 ideas that got picked through mm -hmm. a process and then the teams self-aligned and essentially researchers were given a choice of the top three labs or ideas they could join. Mm -hmm. And the lab directors, these program leaders were given a choice. You have the list of top 30 people you can pick. And this was done secretly. And we did a, 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 a matching. This is a, a, a managed algorithm, right? That mm -hmm. people know that this is a, a matching algorithm. So suppose I say, I, I have ranked Arjun's idea as the third lab to join. Mm -hmm. And then you are, get stuck with me. You say, oh my God, I got a guy who really believe in it, right? You as the lab director had no idea how Prith voted, but Prith clearly voted because it was this matching that I did for you. So there was a lot of thought in creating the organization. And now this is going to the gory details, but because this thought went in, the people, and again, we said, this is the way we are going to do projects at HP Labs. And we literally had a vote and it was voted by everybody. The yes, this is a new way of doing business. So mm -hmm. if your idea did not make it, you could be, you could not afford to be a sulky person, right? You had to contribute because that's how we created these things. In a way, this is how I have heard at Google, when you get recruit, I, I have never worked for Google, but I've mm -hmm. heard that at Google, you join as an engineer. You are as when you join, you don't join for any project. They just hired the very best people, is what I've heard. And then on Fridays, people talk about innovative ideas, and you vote with your feet. Hey, I'm going to join Arjun's project. Essentially, what Google is doing today is what we did in a way in selecting the projects and selecting who will work on the projects at HP Labs. Maybe Google may have done it earlier. I don't care, but I'm just saying there are ways of doing innovation, innovating big in large companies. And this is a way that we did at HP Labs. Yes, so to me, you know, what I 
love about what you took me through the details. I really think the details was very important because otherwise it would be a management concept. But seeing how it worked, what hit me hard was a few things, you know, maybe it happened very spontaneously from your heart, is the first was the inclusive statement. Like you did not come and figure this out and say, guys, everybody's doing it. Like the whole things about should we do this? Can we do this? Like to me, I think there's a whole element of respect. Okay. Second thing also, what you showed us here is this whole commitment is built. Commitment happens when you get a chance to commit. You cannot just commit. Like to me, you don't meet a person and commit that I'll get married. It just builds. And that's the part I love this whole process that you created, the two-step social contract. People conceptually agreed to that process before they started. It's not about let's figure it out. And then what I also love is as you go through, the rules were very clearly established by saying equal opportunity, clear goals of the big bet. Then based on that, it's not because Prithviraj is selecting his favorite, it's whatever is best. And then it's a secret process because that I really love that part because it gives me a chance to reset. Okay? Because I have to have pride in my project. But when mine is not selected, you gave me that opportunity to do an internal mental reset. And what I loved was people talk about commitment, but you showing me these tears really, really is powerful. And I think this is very insightful. So one follow-up question I want to ask is now I want to go back to you, the personal innovator. Okay. In my journey, what I see is the thing that prevents most people from innovating is we have a very organized way of seeing. We look at, like if I was a detective, I walk in, look left, right, you know, three places based on a checklist and say, Prithviraj, my boss, I have checked. You see things differently. You see an end which most don't see because without visualizing, you can't get there. So what gets you in every situation to see things that others do not see? How do you do that? First of all, that is absolutely not true. It's not like I see things others don't see. I think there are lots of other innovators who, but thank you for saying this. Uh, and this is sort of what I, something I told you. I think because of my academic background, mm -hmm. I mean, when people typically work in companies, they, they get brought up in their, hierarchical top-down okay mm -hmm. i'm an engineer i work for a manager i listen to my manager and then manager listens to a senior manager senior manager is vice president most organizations have a very siloed top-down hierarchical kind of a thing right mm -hmm. whereas in academia it is very <laughs> it is it is bottom up right the graduate students get to pick what they will work on the mm -hmm. professors get to work whatever right and the professors submit proposals to nsf if they get funded they will work on it or they will work so I think that background really helped me in being inclusive uh, about how, how I do stuff. Mm -hmm. But I know I spent a lot of time on, on HP Labs, but I have evolved over the years. Right? I, I took on much bigger roles. Right? Let me now talk about how I evolved into CTO at ABB and CTO at Schneider. Those were mm -hmm. similar, similar things that I did. And now I want to really speak about the, the CTO job at ANSYS. And that's actually phenomenally interesting. Mm -hmm. So the CTO at, at ABB and at Schneider, I did sort of followed up. So the CEOs of those companies said, Prit, you have done this very, very interesting, innovative work at HP Lab. I would like you to do something similar. So at ABB, now, mm -hmm. instead of a 
600 person organization at AP Labs. I had now an organization of 8,000 R&D engineers, ABB, $2 billion of R&D expenditure, right? So it is a very large organization and a truly, truly innovative company. I mean, if there is one thing that the Swiss companies do is they have fantastic process, remarkable uh, appetite for innovation and so on. So I really didn't have to do very significant resets as I did at HP Labs, but the concept of the big bets carried on even at ABB. And as CTO, I was able to, to continue that process collectively with the CTOs of the different divisions to work on projects between our corporate research center and the divisions on nine big bets. Big bets at an ABB scale where we said we will do, I mean, the whole world uses, as you know, AC transmission, right? Alternating current. And the, I mean, there's a whole, there's a big uh, current wars. There's a movie on current wars, AC versus DC, Tesla versus uh, this, right? And, and, uh, and, and the world has gone towards AC. But we had this big bet project about DC transmission, high voltage DC transmission. And people say, are you crazy? But there's some creative ideas there. And if you could solve the problem of a DC breaker, that would be amazing. So some really innovative, disruptive things came out as part of the big bet effort at ABB. And I'm really proud of that. Again, all I did was to facilitate those kind of conversations. But we did this thing called unman the, the I mean, we're in automation, right? You, you're doing mining and so on, unman the mine. Can you literally go into a mine and there'll be nobody who, no human beings will work in the mine. So we're mm -hmm. doing very, very creative automation work at ABB and I'm very proud of that. Let me just fast forward to, uh, to, to uh, ANSYS and I will, I will pause it. ANSYS is a simulation company, right? And essentially we take the world of physics around us, right? And the physics is, can be Navier-Stokes equations in fluids here is a fluid, it's a second order partial differential equation. This is how I set a boundary condition. This is how the, the fluid flow will happen over a wing. That equation is fundamental. That is the law of physics, right? And Navier-Stokes sort of created, okay, these are the, the laws of physics, right? What we do at ANSYS is to take those equations and solve them numerically. And essentially we set it up into grid points, solve it numerically over, I mean, if you, if you do finer grid points, it's more accurate. If you do coarser grid points, it's less accurate, but runs fast. So essentially at ANSYS, we have fluid physics and fluid simulation. We have structural physics and finite element analysis to do structural uh, analysis. We have electromagnetic equations, Maxwell's equations, do finite element analysis, solve it equation. So we have, ANSYS is now a one and a half billion dollar company. We have amazingly accurate simulation software in different physics. So now I land in there. I said, what's next for Hansis, right? And so I'm just giving you a, a, a way of this thought, right? The, the future is not just single physics. The future is multi-physics. So fluids interacting with structure, structures interacting with electromagnetics, right? So if you have, for example, a chip, a, 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 a chip, and we, through our Red Hawk SC tool, we can say this chip running with 10 billion transistors operating at two gigahertz will generate 2000 watts of power. If that chip gets on a printed circuit board, it mm -hmm. will heat up. And so the printed circuit board will start expanding. We can model that through ANSYS Mechanical. But to cool it, I need to have air flow or water flow, cool water flow to cool the chip. That's where fluids comes in. So we at ANSYS are now solving this complex 
multi-physic interactions in the same time state, but because of it, the run times go crazy high, right? It becomes super, super expensive. Do. So therefore we are looking at technology pillars such as can I use high performance computing using shared memory, message passing, GPUs to speed things up? Can I use AI machine learning to accelerate stuff? Can I use multi-physics platform? So we have established at ANSYS a long-term technology strategy of where our customers are headed. Customers mm -hmm. like ABB and Schneider, I used to work on those companies, so I sort of have an inside view of where they're headed. And we are essentially trying to provide a simulation-based product innovation future for our customer. It's super, super exciting. I love that. Love you sharing it, your excitement. So you are listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen. And today my VIP guest is Prithviraj Banerjee, who has proven track of big impact innovation in academia, startup, and large companies. And I really want to emphasize the word impact as this important thing is all through from the very first sentence to now, you can see the light in his eyes of course, he loves physics, okay, he loves physics. But he always is seeing beyond is how to make physics and use it to make the bigger business impact, social impact as you start going through. So Prithviraj, the last section is about rapid questions where somebody can listen to this part in just five minutes. So these are three to seven short answers, are you ready? Yes. So first I want to ask is, if you didn't follow your current career, didn't go to an engineering college, what would be your dream career you would have gone randomly? Like, what would you have done, love to do in life? I would have life? been a musician. My okay. passion is playing sitar. And I learned how to play sitar when I was in college. I never had enough time to do it. Uh -huh. And Nikhil Banerjee is my guru. And I, and, and I would have gone into playing sitar and being a professional musician. That is my, my dream. Now, I do that as a hobby, but mm -hmm. I would have done that as a career. Love that. Uh, now, going beyond startups, technology, just as a bigger picture, because you have been in leadership roles and got teams to move forward. What's your advice to anybody in any walk of life in three to eight words? What's to be a successful leader? Successful leader is enabling an organization to succeed. So you need to have your followers, your team members follow you just like the Pied Piper of Hamlet, right? The Pied Piper, he was playing the flute and all the people followed. The Pied Piper did not have a saying, you are vice president and these rats and mice saying, oh, you have to follow. The mm -hmm. Pied Piper played the flute and everybody followed. So the leader, in my opinion, is the Pied Piper who has the ability to make other people follow by the vision, by the energy, by the passion, not by hierarchical directional stuff in an org chart. Right. Or it's not your title. No, it's, not the title. Not, not top hard to follow you. Yes. No. So to me, how do you innovate at a rapid place? A pace? What's the uh, one secret to innovating at a rapid pace? So it is about agility. You have to think big, but you have to and there's this concept of lean startup that Eric Ries has talked about, and I have embraced that to the heart, that you come up with a, a grand vision, but you need to test it very quickly and be willing to admit 
this thing is failing, right? Don't mm-hmm. just keep it. Now, now that, that is where the trade-off is. Sometimes to win big, you have to really be innovative and keep trying it. After 20 years, it will work, right? Other times, you have to know where you have hit a brick wall and be willing to pivot. The most successful innovators know when to pivot. So mm-hmm. to give an example, when a VC invests in a startup, they invest in the team. They mm-hmm. would rather invest in an A plus team with a B minus idea than an A plus idea with a B minus team because the A plus team will figure out when they have hit a brick wall and they will pivot. They, VCs invest in people. Big companies also invest in, in most innovative leaders. Love that. So to me, working with leaders, they rule out some obstacles in their mind. You know, I work with some of the top at sports athletes, they literally, when they were kids, they'd get a dictionary and remove the word no, impossible, out of that. What's the word not in Prithviraj Manaji's dictionary? I actually think nothing is impossible. If you dream big enough, anybody can achieve much, much higher than their current, uh, where they are. Nothing is impossible. Love that. So now if you go back, of course, you know, we talked about your passion for sitar. So if you go back to young Pitharaj graduating from high school and just thinking about what to do next before your engineering days, what would be one piece of advice you would give that young man? Be curious. Be curious. Don't only follow what your teacher told you in school. Always explore alternative things. And what, when I grew up, I had a textbook, I had a teacher. I actually didn't have the option to do the explorations. Mm-hmm. Today's kids have the option to go to school. They have the, the massive thing of Google, mm-hmm. Wikipedia out there, right? So at their fingertips, they can actually explore so many things. So I would encourage kids to be constantly searching, exploring for the truth and don't just listen to one point of view. There are always multiple points of view. Always be curious. One thing that we I, I, I tell people is, why do you go to university, right, to get a PhD? Mm-hmm. It is not about getting learning that one thing that you learn. It mm-hmm. is the ability to learn to learn, right? Mm-hmm. That is at the core of innovation, right? So all these young kids, they need to be open to be able to learn to learn. Don't just learn how to multiply eight times six. That is an easy thing. But know how you would be able to learn eight times six multiplication as well as this, as well as something. So always have that ability, that curiosity to learn new things, to innovate new things. And don't only listen to one point of view. I love that. And there are two things that thoughts that come to my mind. One is a very good common friend of ours, PPC Parthagotim Chakraborty. When he was talking about, he gave a very simple thing about a graduate student when he's done. He always said a graduate student's thesis is done when he knows more than the instructor and whoever the guide is. And that was from him coming from his accomplishments. It was so humble. And the second thing also, I really think that whole concept of seeing beyond is, you know, to me, anyone I meet, I just ask them in any professional setting or in a conference, if I'm speaking is what is three and three, okay? 99% of people will say six, but then there's that one person who would say, Arjun, three and three is a stronger three. 
He said, can you define three for me or can I define three myself? I said, I don't want to define. And then there was these incredible answers. One guy said, two of them makes an amazing eight. Somebody even flipped it down sideways by saying threes are actually Ws. It's like two wins. And I just think that the very fact, some of these is random, but people like this totally change the mind. So as you start your day, you know, to me, I feel success like yours is cannot be random, okay? especially in multiple industries. Do you have a process? Like what do you do first thing in the, when you start your work day and how, you know, what do you do when you're finishing your work day? Is there a routine you want to share? So I, I may not start or end, but in a day, I always try to find some time for my own thinking. Because in this, this sort of treadmill of life that we go through, right? We are going from meeting to meeting to meeting, right? And essentially, okay, in this meeting, I do this. And you're literally running from meeting to meeting. I try to keep on my calendar sometime, okay? So what is it that I want to accomplish today, this week, and so on, right? And so what are my top three priorities of today to this week or so on? So I always do that at the beginning of the day or as close to the beginning of the day in a thought time, right? I try mm -hmm. to set aside half an hour or whatever. And at the end of the day, I actually, this is something crazy that I do. I sort of say, okay, so, so, so what were the highlights? What, what did I accomplish, right? And just that self-reflection at the beginning of the day to prioritize what are the most important. Mm -hmm. And at the end, what did I actually accomplish? And there are days that I say, oh my God, it just was one meeting to another and so on. I have not been able to do that. That is a kick to myself saying that tomorrow, therefore, I should make sure I have time for that creative thinking. So I think that is an important Love uh, that. process. Love that. That. Keeping that time. So Prithviraj, I could, you know, we could have this conversation over a four-hour podcast. So I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing from your heart. And what I really liked was you gave us the examples, which was very powerful. So thank you again for taking time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. So today, my conversation with Prithviraj Banerjee was very fascinating. And of course, I will go through this over and over again to find nuggets. But there are three major, major concepts that right away hit me hard. One is right off the back when Prithviraj talked about R&D innovation. This is not about finding something new. He talked about there's a purpose. At the end, there's a journey. And the journey is to offer, offer real value. And that's where he talked about is from the very beginning, you know, it's very important to be pure, doing new things, what the world didn't, but it's all about adding value. And that's the part where he really talked about is, is there somebody, businesses, what percentage of the world needs this and they're ready to pay for it? Is there a social need that will change the world? And because of that, time would be saved, things would happen faster because it's a clear, tangible benefit that people realize and it gets to a PNL over time. The second thing also, what was really fascinating was that first thing he talked about is how we get there is based on the size of the organization, but it works for every organization is what he talked about, the concept of a big bet, which is critical for you. And to me, it just reminds me of a very simple example. The founder of Papa John's Pizza had come to a conference just to juggle with one ball. Yeah, he being the founder, we sat there and then he tried two and three, it was a disaster. He just said that till you become the perfect at one ball juggler, why are you even try two or three things? And that's the part where 
what he showed us was that's true for not only smaller brands, but it's also for big brands. For a brand like Hewlett Packard, you know, I really appreciate giving at a higher level, you know, non-proprietary details about how the brands very successful, very successful individuals went to the next level from 1800 to 20 big bet projects. And that takes me to the third big insight because many a time we hear about this, of course, it makes logical sense that the company will do better. But that was the fascinating part was, as Prithviraj talked about an attitude where he felt inclusive from his heart and once you feel inclusive from the heart, people feel inclusive. Okay. Then he put a process and he got buying into the process. The process was transparent. So to me, there was attitude, then there was transparency. And the transparency was no rules are changed. This is the process and it's a two-step social contract. Initially, you give ideas, but once the ideas are there, it's just like before the train leaves, we can all agree, argue where we want. But once you sit on the train, you know, we all have jobs to do. My job could be clean the bathrooms. Yours could be to bring food, but that's not the time to argue on destinations. And if you want to, you should not be on the train. And I really love that tough talk that happened was set up not at the end, but at the very beginning. And this was to me more than just an innovation. This was a fascinating management example of how you get very talented, committed minds to commit to a bigger cause. Again, thank you. This is totally fascinating. Thank you all for listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen. Please subscribe, share, and review your podcast. Happy listening. And thank you again, Prithvi Rizda. Totally inspired me again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, brand whisperer, top brand growth driver, and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. To learn more, visit www.zenmango.com. Share this podcast with your friends and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank you.